Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. There are many valuable lessons of life, as I'm sure you've learned, out on the open road when you're driving. And this is one of them that I learned. (laughs) Forgive me, it's a truck driving story. But many years ago, I left home early one cold, snowy winter morning. I was driving a two-trailer big rig and headed north on I-15. The roads were icy and extremely slick. I was just passing through the lava rocks between Blackfoot and Idaho Falls, northbound, to that area that is affectionately known as Hell's Half Acre. I was cruising carefully in the right-hand lane when a jacked-up four-wheel drive pickup pulling a trailer passed me. Now, It looked like it was probably some guys headed for Island Park to go snow machining. They weren't going exceptionally fast, just faster than me. And all at once, the pickup truck that they were driving spun out on that slick, icy road, and that trailer started to come around him. And in a moment, that guy was completely out of control. There was no way to know whether he was going to come across and crash into me or go the other way and off into the center median. I tell you, it was a tense couple of seconds as we waited for him to quit doing his didos and finish. Well, as it turned out, he went to the left into the center lane and away from traffic. I sped right by him as he went round and round and round and finally slid off into the median amidst a great big billowing cloud of powdery snow. (laughs) Ah, It was exciting. Now, the next part, though, is my point. I've driven enough over the years, and I've watched people slide off on slick roads like that. And one lady I'll never forget, she spun off in front of me, around and around and around and went plowing into the median and was buried in snow about three feet, four feet thick. And when she came to a stop, I stopped, ran into the median, and she was still sitting there in the driver's seat, both hands on the wheel, staring straight ahead with a terrified look on her face. So I've seen enough people slide off the road, and I've seen all kinds of reactions. But not this guy. (laughs) Oh, bless his heart. That truck no sooner stopped sliding than he rammed it into four-wheel drive, punched it, and came right back up on the road like a man with the mission, hardly missing a beat. I laughed right out loud. This guy was good. Very good. (laughs) Now, what's the point? In a recent conference, we talked a lot about the covenant path. I know from personal experience perfectly that the covenant path can sometimes be really hard to stay on. I don't know about you, but sometimes we lose control and we slide right off that path and make 
a mess out of ourselves and sometimes others. But, like my friend in the jacked-up four-wheel drive, are we going to sit there in the borrow pit of mortality, traumatized immobility, or are we going to waste no time, punch it, and get right back on? Get back on. Next story. This story was shared with me by the descendants of Margaret Crawford of an unusual event in about 1842. And for some odd reason, though I told the story maybe a year or so ago, I feel the need to share it again. Margaret Crawford lived in Lanarkshire, Scotland. In those days, and I've been there, those folks relied heavily on the burning of coal, which could quickly turn everything black. They used to refer to Edinburgh as Old Riki, meaning that it was covered with black and it stunk because of the coal smoke. So everything coal, burning coal, turned everything black. In the Crawford home, they had a large fireplace at one end of a low ceiling room where the family did most of their cooking. There were large deposits of chalk in the hills nearby, which could be mixed with water to make a functional whitewash that was used to paint the walls. It was Margaret's job to clean and paint the walls as she was the oldest girl. Well, according to the account of Margaret's granddaughter, it was that time of the year, Margaret had just finished her task of whitewashing the wall and was admiring the snow-white walls and hoping it would not have to be done again very soon. Suddenly, there came a knock at the door. Margaret went and opened it and let in what seemed to be a beggar. He walked into the room and looked at the girl and then at the mother and at the white walls he stood for a moment and gazed steadily at Margaret. Then he walked over to the fireplace and picked up a piece of charcoal, went to the white walls, and began to write. The mother and the daughter looked on in speechless amazement. No one had uttered a word since the appearance of this strange person. Then both Margaret and her mother began to remonstrate at having the walls all marked up with black charcoal just after they'd cleaned him. But the guy wouldn't quit. He seemed to know nothing of what they were saying. In other words, he ignored them completely. He continued writing until he had covered the whole wall from top to bottom. And then when he finished... He walked out of the room without even saying a word. According to another account, when the stranger had finished, he walked outside. Margaret and her mother went out right behind him. And when they got outside, the stranger was nowhere to be seen, nor had the children playing in the yard seen him. Margaret and her mother then went back inside to see what the man had written. Turns out, it was a message to Margaret, declaring that Margaret was going to be visited by a young man 
who was teaching a new and strange religion in Scotland. This young man was from the New World, from America, and had crossed many waters to teach her their religion. The message went on to say that she would accept that new religion, and so would some of her family, but others would not accept it, and she would suffer persecution if she joined it. The young man, who was of her own nationality, he was a Scot, would return to her home, then he would come again to her land and take her as his wife across the many waters. All of this is written on the wall. There in the new world, it continued, they would build a home and have a great posterity. Like a patriarchal blessing in charcoal written on the family wall. While continuing, the family laughed and made fun of the message. It was just a fairy tale, they said. Not long after that, a man, a young man by the name of James Houston, originally from Paisley, Scotland, who had been called to serve as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Nauvoo, came into that area of Lanarkshire, Scotland. Yes, he taught Margaret the gospel, baptized her in the River Clyde, and yes, married her shortly after. After Elder Houston's release in 1845, the couple sailed for America, arriving in Nauvoo, just in time for the great exodus of the saints to the Rocky Mountains. James and Margaret settled in St. George, Utah, and were blessed with nine children and a noble posterity. I thank the family for sharing that, and though I don't know why to repeat that story, still, I hope it helps someone. By small and simple things, my friends, are great things brought to pass again and again and again. That principle is brought home to me in a very powerful way. By small and simple things, great things happen. You hardly notice it. And again, even the smallest candle can ignite a mighty flame. For example, September 1835, two men rode on horseback a distance of 25 miles from Manaway, Ohio, to the small community of Kirtland. They were going to school. The one young man was a student enrolled at the Presbyterian School of Oberlin College. He was beginning a new semester of studies at Oberlin, and he came from something of a privileged background. His father, a prosperous farmer and a community man, a judge, he had grown up this young man with a close family and many opportunities for the day. The other fellow, well, now he was something, something different. He was considerably older. He was a frontiersman born in Vermont and something of a rustic who had never had the privilege of learning letters and a life of opportunity. That man had left home when he was just a boy and carved out a homestead in the wilderness of southeastern Michigan. So removed was this man from the joys of home and family life as a child 
that he lived out his days never even knowing his own birth date. Well, as the two men rode along, of course, they conversed on many subjects. Years later, the young student said, quote, I was at first disposed to treat his opinions lightly, especially so as they were not always clothed in grammatical language, end quote. Well, the two men talked of philosophy and then the subject turned to religion as they rode along. The older man, in the course of the conversation, began to open up the scriptures and explain the plan of salvation and the conditions of the human family in a marvelous way. And as he did so, the disposition of the young friend, the student, began to change. He found himself unable to resist the knowledge that this was, for all of his rustic qualities, a man of God. He said, quote, I felt pricked in my heart. Though his language may not have been the most refined, the man possessed a mind of deep thought and rich intelligence, end of quote. He so opened the eyes and expanded the mind of that young man that it changed that man forever. Sixty-four years later, that young student, now an old man at the end of his days, would reflect back on that day on horseback as follows, quote, All the circumstances of my first and last meeting with him are as clear to my mind as if it were an occurrence of but yesterday. He appeared to me then to be a remarkable man, and that impression has remained with me ever since. This was the turning point in my life. What impressed me most was his absolute sincerity, his earnestness, and his spiritual power. End of quote. The man bore a powerful witness of the truthfulness of the restored gospel and then charged the young student to go before the Lord that very night and ask for himself. To that charge, that young man was true. He was subsequently baptized and himself went on to greatness in the eyes of the Almighty in the beginning days of the Restoration. That young student was Lorenzo Snow. Young Snow would never have the opportunity of meeting with his friend in this life for within three years. That great mentor would die a martyr. The first apostolic martyr of this dispensation, David W. Patton. And thus is the power of a simple, humble, sincere, fearless testimony. In your Sunday school lesson coming up, you would have studied about Elder Patton, and there'll be more to come in later sections. Let me tell you a little bit more about David W. Patton. He is one of the men that I really, really hope to meet when I get beyond the veil. In my mind, he stands of a similar character as Brigham Young. 
Spring 1833, Avon, Ohio. A meeting was underway, and a missionary stood to preach. But there was a man in the congregation determined to stop him. He was known as the county bully and had proven himself an annoyance to every speaker so far. This night, he was particularly boisterous, and when he called out for the missionary at the stand to cast out a devil, the elder, having warned him, suddenly stopped speaking, beelined his way off the rostrum, down through the crowd, grabbed the tormentor by the seat of the pants and the nap of the neck, bodily carried him to the back door and threw him ten feet out onto a wood pile. A ripple of humor swept through the crowd, and the saying went up that the missionary had cast out one devil, soul, and body. <laughs> that, that missionary was David W. Patton. Patton was a powerful man, physically as well as spiritually. He stood about six feet to six feet two inches tall and weighed about 200 pounds, he was described as dark hair, dark complected, a very handsome man, and as I described to you earlier, a frontiersman who had joined the church early on and became a very, very powerful missionary. David Patton was a man of great faith. He was among those called to serve in the first quorum of the Twelve Apostles in 1835. As it would turn out, Patton didn't know his own birth date. It was discovered in this century. He didn't know his own birth date, and when they called the first Quorum of the Twelve, they appointed the oldest man, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, Thomas B. Marsh. Turns out, should have been David Patton. He was older by one year, but he didn't know his birth date. At any rate, Patton's service to the Lord was constant and varied. While serving as a missionary in Tennessee in the spring of 1836, Patton came face to face with that Cain who slew Abel. That's quite a story in and of itself. When the saints faced persecution and mobocracy in Missouri in 1838, it was Elder Patton whose indomitable courage and leadership among the saints earned him the nickname of Captain Fear Not. Thus it was October. 1838, when David Patton learned of a family threatened by the mob. In command of a small group of men, he found the mother and children homeless, destitute, and suffering. He gathered them up and started for safety when it began a heavy rain, adding to the misery already abundant. David asked the company to stop. He dismounted his horse stepped off into the tall, wet grass where he commanded the storm to cease until the women, the woman and her little ones could be conveyed to safety. The storm stopped. Then sometime near midnight, October 24th, 1838, word reached far west that a mob had kidnapped and threatened to kill three Latter-day Saints from an outlying farm. Seventy-five men volunteered under the leadership of Captain Patton to go to the rescue. They rolled all night across the darkened prairie, searching for that mob. 
just before sunrise, while approaching Crooked River from the east, a voice called out, Who goes there? And then immediately after, the sentries and then the whole mob opened fire and men began to fall. Captain Patton called out, God and liberty, and led the charge into the mob. The mob scattered and began to run. As they fled, one mobber, it is said, stepped out from behind a tree and shooting from the hip, shot Elder Patton in the stomach. In that fracas, three men would die. Captain Patton was terribly wounded. He was carried toward far west, but the agony of the movement was too intense. At the home of Stephen Winchester, south of far west, his brethren and wife gathered about him. To his beloved wife, David Patton said in his last moments, quote, Whatever you do else, oh, do not deny the faith. Turning to the prophet Joseph Smith and to Hiram and to Elder Heber C. Kimball, who was there, he said, Brethren, you have held me here by your faith, but do give me up and let me go, I beseech you. They did so. And moments later, Elder David W. Patton was gone, the first apostolic martyr of this dispensation. He was laid to rest somewhere near far west, his grave today unknown and unmarked. As for Elder David Wyman Patton, the Lord would later say that he took him unto himself. Doctrine and Covenants 124.19 At his funeral, the prophet Joseph Smith would point down to his lifeless body and say, there lies a man who has done exactly what he said he would do. He has given his life for his friends. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.